Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Claire McDonald, co-founder and COO of TrueLink Financial, a company that aims to make life better for people with disabilities, vulnerable elders, individuals in recovery, and their families and professional support networks. At TrueLink, she focuses on growth, product, operations, and customer experience. In my mind, there's no doubt TrueLink is a transformative company worth paying attention to, particularly because it serves and meaningfully helps some of the most vulnerable members of society. The company has raised over $50 million from a list of impressive investors, including Santana Growth Partners, Cosla Ventures, Initialized Capital, QED, Radical Impact, Y Combinator, Alexis Ohanian, and many more. And now join me in an inspiring conversation with Claire McDonald. All right, Claire, thank you for Great. joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Extremely excited to have you here all the way from San Francisco. Perhaps we could start by hearing a bit about your background. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Miguel. Really happy to be here. So I grew up in West Virginia and Florida and moved out to San Francisco after college almost 15 years ago. I moved out here for my dream job at the time, which was management consulting, but for organizations in the social sector. So that was at the Bridgespan Group, which is the nonprofit extension of Bain. And that was an amazing way to start my career because I learned this business strategy toolkit and I got to work on issues like educational equity that I really cared about. And I also experienced a work environment that was really demanding, but also caring and developmental. And then after Bridgespan, I got an exciting opportunity to participate in what was more or less a design thinking entrepreneur in residence program at Innovation Endeavors, which was one of Eric Schmidt's venture firms. And this was this really phenomenal exposure for me to the dynamics and inner working of venture capital and venture-backed businesses. And I spun my first startup out of that, which was a wellness app for young people. And then fast forward for a while now, I've been the co-founder and COO of TrueLink. And at TrueLink, what we do is make life better for vulnerable older adults, for people with disabilities, and for individuals in recovery from addiction, and for their families and professional support networks. And we do this by offering banking and investment services, and eventually we hope other financial services as well. Fascinating. Really, you're tackling a really an important problem that honestly, you don't hear a lot of companies focusing on this area. But before we go there, tell us about that entrepreneurial bug. You know, that it sounds like you had it pretty early on. Why do you think you decided to pursue entrepreneurship? It's a great question. I have had an entrepreneur. I, I did catch that entrepreneurial bug pretty early. I think my whole life I have looked out into the world and seen problems or seen things that I wish were different. And then I usually look and see first if anyone else is working on them. And then if they are, I jump on board. And if not, I kind of can't help myself. I start trying to problem solve. And I think I've done that in lots of different ways on lots of different issues. And it's just true length that has kind of stuck and been the one that I've done for the longest and that I'm still working on today. Yeah. So 
financial victimization for the elderly and also the vulnerable populations is a major problem, right? But why did you decide to focus on specifically this issue with Truelink? Yeah, sure. So for a few reasons. First, personal experience. So I experienced this in my own family. My grandmother lived with dementia for the last years of her life. And so I saw really up close the hard work of financial caregiving and financial protection that my family did. And then second, just personal motivation more generally. I'm really motivated by solving these hard problems that are unsolved. And I have a hard time getting excited about building a 10th way to order takeout or another fintech app for millennials just personally. So the answer to the question, whose problem are you solving and how bad a problem is it are really important to me. That's what gets me up in the morning. And with TrueLink, I saw the opportunity to solve a really bad problem for a lot of people. And then finally, when thinking about starting a business, I wanted something where there was a strong business model that was really aligned with the mission. I think this is actually what can be really elusive. (laughs) So my previous company, we were building for an advertising business model. And I just saw how quickly the people who pay your bills, they can become your actual customers. And that was a really big reality check for me. I really wanted a business where our customers are the people we're serving and the people we're serving are our customers and our incentives are aligned with theirs, not with advertisers or with anyone else. And I just love that our products offer this clear value and real impact. And if people need and want that value, they're willing to pay for it. And how did you approach the early days? You're not doing this alone. You have a co-founder, but then you also had to find your initial team and then a team that was committed on, on this mission. How did that work for you? Yeah. Well, part of what drew me to this problem and this business was my co-founder. He's an incredible person. And we saw from the very early days how complimentary we are and how well we work together. And that has been borne out by time. So that's pretty important. And then in terms of operations, you know, we've always had a really heavily operational focus. So we've always seen it as the product is what you deliver to the end user. And that is actually, especially in the early days, a combination of humans and technology. And we always understood that kind of operations was part of the product. And we've always been really ops heavy and willing to go the extra mile to figure out how to make something work for a customer and meet their needs even before our software could do everything we needed it to do. And then we've had some really strong talent from the very beginning. Credit card processing, which is where we started, is fundamentally a really demanding problem in terms of security, speed, reliability, and technical complexity, and all the things you need to decode and encode correctly every time a credit card gets swiped. So ultimately, I think that the mission and then the like exciting and complex nature of the challenge were really important factors in our ability to attract technical talent and strong talent generally early on. And you know, we started with a really small team. I guess, obviously, as all companies do, but although we're about 90 people today, for a while, we were actually just like under 10 people, very lean, kind of like figuring it out, making it happen (laughs) very scrappily and very creatively. And you went through YC at the very beginning, right? How was that experience? YC was really, really critical for us. There's some companies that are kind of going to be fine no matter what they do. And there's some companies that really need all the help they can get. And just honestly, we were always that second kind of company. Ours is a market that people didn't instinctively believe in at the time. I think now they're really starting to, but they really didn't when we started. And it took a lot of startup capital just to get the products live, 
And then building out a sustainable, scalable growth model also took a while. It didn't happen overnight. So for us, Y Combinator was an incredible source of community, expertise, and credibility that we're still kind of active and enthusiastic participants in that community today. Very cool. Yeah, we have a few guests that have been also through YC, and they always have a lot of great things to say about it. So let's talk about your product suite and about your customers specifically, right? You started with a credit card. You've evolved since. Tell us about some of those products and why they resonate with your customers. Absolutely. Let me give you a few examples because we do have these three different customer groups. So the first one is, let's take the example, and this is where we started, of a person with Alzheimer's. So a person with Alzheimer's inherently usually can't keep a budget because they can't remember how much they've already spent. So if there was something they used to do on a budget, like, you know, enter a sweepstake about once a month, donate to a specific charity about once a month. Now, every time they're faced with the opportunity to do that, they likely don't have a recent memory of doing it. So it feels like the right time to do it again. And the end result is that you can have an older adult, you know, entering sweepstakes every day, multiple times a day, donating to a scammy charity 20 times a day, like was the case with my co-founder, Kai's grandmother. And I think that actually, I think that these companies that are targeting these older adults, they know exactly what they're doing, but that's another, that's another topic. So the way our product works is you and your mom get together when you understand there's a problem with this and you need a solution. So you can set up one of our cards for your mom and simply block sweepstakes entries or block a specific scammy charity, but not all the other charities that she likes to donate to. So she can do everything she usually does, but the sweepstakes entries aren't a problem anymore. Other times the problem is TV shopping or like I said, charitable contributions or magazine subscriptions or online dating or misplacing cash or making gifts to family and friends. So in any of those cases, we give the family member who's acting as a financial caregiver a way to prevent those transactions and stop the problem while preserving as much autonomy and independence for the vulnerable individual as possible. So another example is in the case of people recovering from addiction, a simple way to think about it is behind every relapse is a financial transaction that could have been prevented. And so we're not going to prevent someone from relapsing, but every speed bump you add, every support you put in place is just giving a person that much more time to make a different decision. So it could be automatically blocking all bars and liquor stores. It could be texting a family member or a sponsor every time you take cash out of the cash machine. It could be establishing yourself a curfew. So you go grocery shopping in the morning, but you just walk straight home after work at night. So whatever the right arrangements are, and the important thing about our services is it's usually different for almost everyone. You can adapt, our software can adapt to that for you. And then one more example, <laughs> people with disabilities. So if you have long-term in-home care, that's required for you because of your condition, that costs thousands of dollars a month. And it's unlikely that over like 20 years, you've got a spare million bucks to pay for that. So ultimately, given the nature of our healthcare system, many people who need this type of care end up relying on Medicaid to pay for it. So something you might not know is that there's record-keeping requirements that are fairly stringent when you're being audited for Medicaid eligibility and you need to maintain that or um, that occurs much more broadly with other government benefits programs like certain social security programs, ABLE Act accounts, Section 8 housing. So a lot of what our payments and investment products can do is provide the record keeping for that benefits eligibility. Now, I imagine you have 
several partners that are non-fintech companies, right? I mean, to get a lot of these things going, I, do you partner maybe with the healthcare space or with the other verticals that have nothing to do with fintech, but they do with your population? Yeah, that's exactly right. Most of our partnerships are not fintech or financial services partnerships. They're actually partnerships with more like human services organizations. So we often work with government programs at the state and county level, really any organization that is focused on supporting people with disabilities, vulnerable older adults, people in recovery. So anything from nonprofits that are providing in-home care to the ARC, which is a national network of nonprofits serving people with disabilities. So to mental organizations that are part of their network, for example. That makes sense. And speaking on fraud, so you mentioned that there are some scammy companies that target specifically these vulnerable populations. Since you started, which is at this point, I mean, close to eight years, if I'm not mistaken, since you started, have you seen levels of fraud increase, decrease? Have you seen fraud evolve? I'm sure this is an important topic for you. Absolutely. At the core, we've seen fraud maintain some really, fraud and fraudulent actors maintain some like core consistency. And that is looking for vulnerabilities and trying to take advantage of whatever vulnerabilities present themselves. So that means that as the situation evolves, people perpetrate fraud in different ways. So just to give you a recent example, we've seen a lot of fraudulent activity related to the federal stimulus and federal benefits payments, for example. So people like opening cards in people's names, trying to steal, apply for and steal benefits. And then one of the cool things about our technology is that we actually collect data from what we're seeing across all of our customers and then apply that to prevent issues faced by our other customers. So we can respond pretty quickly to these kinds of evolutions. Claire, this is an important problem that you're solving, but it's also a, it's not just a U.S. problem, it's a global problem. Have you ever considered international expansion or partnering with international organizations? We definitely have considered it a lot and we get a lot of really compelling like inbound emails about, can I use this here? Or like, I'm in this country with this problem. And we've definitely thought a lot about it and explored different possibilities. And then to date, we've always made the decision that there's so much work ahead of us and work to do here, just extending the number of people we serve in the U.S. So we haven't pursued the international expansion, but it's definitely something we think about. Understood, understood. Now, one thing that I do know you think a lot about is company culture. And it's actually a topic that keeps coming up regularly on this podcast. Founders and and investors understand how important culture is, particularly for a startup. I know this is close to your heart. So curious to learn about the company culture you've built at Truling. Yeah. So in terms of distinctive things about our culture and distinctive company values, One thing that really stands out to me about TrueLink is humility. So um, humility is really sort of high on the list of things that make us special. And this looks like internally, the engineers knowing they have a lot to learn from the support team and the support team knowing they have a lot to learn from the engineers. Nobody interpersonally sort of being a rock star. And then also externally, and I think probably this is most important and in some ways where this value of humility really comes from, is that 
we're just a piece of the puzzle supporting a family in a really, really complex situation. And we don't actually have all the answers. And we're looking to our customers, the families, the experts, the advocates to really teach us what they need. So this translates, I think, to a mindset both internally and externally of being as helpful as possible, but then also asking for as much help as you can get to do the work well. And then I think with that humility, we have this orientation towards inclusion and caring and equity. It's important to gather different perspectives because one person and like one type of person isn't going to have all the answers. And then really giving each other the benefit of the doubt as well. And then operationally, I think our culture really stems from those values. There's not a lot of showiness. Each person has a lot of responsibility, but doesn't bite off more than they can chew. And we seek out every piece of information or data, regardless of title or seniority. And looking back at the early days of the company, do you think the culture has really been the same all throughout or has it evolved over time? I think that it's been fairly consistent at its core but it's really evolved as new people have joined and kind of like built on it and like innovated around it, right? Or like there might have been something that we thought was important, but it wasn't until a certain person joined and like brought their own sort of special energy to that, that it evolved. Got it. And when it comes to new joiners, what's your approach for recruiting talent? Do you prioritize culture fit versus talent, or does it really have to be an equal mix? Yeah, it really has to be both. So we're looking for, we call it culture ad. So someone who wants to come enhance our culture, and then also who has what it takes to really excel in their role. And people tend to join the company for three reasons, I would say. The first is values and culture. So it's like people showing up the office, showing up on the Zoom in these COVID days and saying like, hmm, this is where I belong, you know, and that's not for everyone, but for the right people, that's what happens. And it's really wonderful. And the second is mission. We often say that we help solve problems that people cry about. That's how real the problems are. And so a lot of people just find that really rewarding. And then of course, you know, people like joining a fast growing successful company. So that, that tends to help as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And your clients also, I imagine, have been some of the most affected by the COVID crisis that we're living now. You know, tell us about your response to this pandemic. Something we see when disaster strikes in general is that the people who are sort of living on the edge are the most affected and the most likely to suffer severe consequences. And one way to think of our services at TrueLink is that what we're helping to do is to strengthen the safety net around an individual. So by doing things like enabling a financial caregiver to provide more autonomy and more safety with less time, for example. So every time there's some kind of crisis or disaster, we see this in our work. So when there's a hurricane, for example, hurricanes in the South and people are evacuating, our services make it possible for them to get emergency funds and put gas in their cars. And they might not have had a high quality way to do that or a way to do that before our services. So often after like lots of disasters and issues, after hurricanes, people will call in and tell us that we literally saved their lives. And so with COVID, the main thing we've seen is that our products have made it much more doable for our clients and their caregivers to shelter in place and to reduce their exposure. 
So we've gotten some really touching, you know, like, thank God for TrueLink. And I don't know what I would do without TrueLink right now messages over the last few months. In many ways, that's really just from offering the core services that we already offered. They've just become even more critical during such a challenging time. And the team has just really delivered. It has not been easy. We've had employees who've been sick themselves, a lot of family caregiving, people crammed up in these tiny apartments on the phone all day helping customers. But we've done it. And I think we're all really proud of that. And what about the road ahead? Do you think this crisis has made you reconsider or maybe even shift some of your future plans? How do you envision the future of the company? I think in some ways, this crisis has sort of reaffirmed for us the value of what we're doing and of the vision. So the first thing that we're really committed to is serving more people with the services that we have today, right? We have a lot of customers today, but there are just many, many more people out there that we could be helping. So we're really committed to making our services more known and really working in the direction of at least having like offered our services to the millions of people that could benefit from them. And then we're also thinking a lot about product expansion. We find that the more integrated our services are, the better of a job that we do. And right now we offer payments and investment products. And so I think we're likely to start thinking about insurance products and more generally about expanding some of the types of banking that we offer. So nothing to announce yet, but I think we're, we're sort of reaffirmed in our commitment to the work during this really hard time. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, and it sounds like the story and then the problem has resonated with investors as well, right? You've gone through, are you at this point past Series B company? That's right. Right. And you have some great backers. I was looking, you have some amazing companies, including some interesting angels like Alexis Ohanian, founder of Reddit. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Alexis and Gary from Initialized Capital invested. We have incredible investors, many of whom have incredible expertise in building venture-backed businesses or especially in fintech and financial services. And they all like really get and care about and believe in both our mission and the market opportunity around it. And so we're just very lucky to have had great investors from day one. Great. Now, Claire, as I was mentioning to you before we start recording, we have a lot of aspiring founders that listen to the show, not just from the U.S., from around the world. And I think it would be good to hear some of your reflections and maybe particularly for female founders, because, you know, it is a bit of a different point of view. I know you're, you're a founder first and, and you're an outstanding founder, but also you have this unique point of view that I think would be amazing to share. Absolutely. So my biggest advice in general about entrepreneurship, or maybe just work in general, but I'll say definitely entrepreneurship, is that you might spend five, even 10 years of your life on a company, and it could still fail. And that means that you should do something that you will be proud of, even if you don't succeed. So for me, providing a critical service to an underserved group of people, that and I found that if, if I wasn't doing something that I really cared about, I think there'd be days where it just isn't worth it. But that's, that's my advice for entrepreneurs in general. And then in terms of female founders, I guess my main advice or the thing that has been most helpful to me is befriending other female founders or other people who I identify with in some meaningful way and then supporting and learning from them. 
And so, you know, for me, finding and building that community has been so essential and taking care of myself and getting the most out of this journey. Has that community grown and evolved over time? Absolutely. It has grown and evolved over time. And I think I've met a lot of people through Y Combinator and the Y Combinator sort of cohort and community is consistently getting more diverse and inclusive in a really exciting way. And then I'm just constantly meeting new people that I can sort of learn from and be inspired by. Great. Well, I hope this podcast leads you to meet even more. (laughs) Great. So Claire, before we go, something that we always like to ask all of our guests is to tell us a little bit about their hobbies and how they spend some of their time outside of work. Cause I'm sure you're pretty busy, but I imagine you make time for different activities. Um, yeah, no hobbies. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. So a um, few things that I like to do outside of work. I love to read fiction and literary nonfiction. And then I, I sort of see like friendship as a hobby. So investing in really close, supportive friendships is something that I end up spending a lot of time doing. And then lastly, I personally am really committed to criminal justice reform and supporting nonprofits and advocates who are uh, fighting for a more, a more just world. And so two nonprofits that I've worked with that are doing incredible work more than ever during COVID actually are um, the prison university project and the prison law office. So those are the, a few of the things that, that keep me busy outside of TrueLink. Outstanding. What should listeners do if they want to get involved with these nonprofits? They should go to their website, Prison University Project and Prison Law Office, and donate or sign up to volunteer. Great. Great. Perfect. Well, Claire, this has been a treat. Thank you for joining us and and making the time. Very much appreciated. Hopefully, if things are ever back to normal, you're always invited to join us on campus if not you're now a friend of the show a friend of wharton so we hope to keep in touch thanks so much miguel it's been a real pleasure really appreciate you uh having me here absolutely thank you thank you for listening to today's episode of the wharton fintech podcast if you like the show please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.